Well, as Gareth said, we're continuing our series in, in Zechariah this, this evening. Uh, last week, we looked at the whole of, of chapter 7, uh, where we saw that roughly two years after the eight strange visions that Zechariah had seen, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah again. And it did so because a delegation had arrived from Bethel to entreat the Lord uh, by asking questions of the priests and prophets. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And the Lord actually gave a fourfold response through Zechariah. Four times uh, throughout chapters seven and eight, we are told the word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah. Uh, we saw the first two of those in chapter seven last week. Firstly, the word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah in verse four of chapter seven. And he went on to say what that was in verses five to seven. And it was a word of stern rebuke. It was saying what the Lord does not require. He was saying, don't be proud of fasting. That doesn't please me. I've not told you to do that. And you're not do it, really doing it for me. You've devised that for yourselves and you're doing it for yourselves. I don't want your fasting. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah, uh, to Zechariah again in verse eight of chapter seven. And in verses nine to 14, we see what that word was. Uh, in verses nine to 10, it began with a statement of what the Lord does require. And what he does require is not hard hearts, but soft hearts, soft hearts that show honesty, mercy, compassion. And he then gave a reminder that this was the very um, requirement that the former prophets had brought to their forefathers. And they'd made their hearts as hard as diamond and they'd refused to listen. And he also gives a reminder that it was that very hard-hearted refusal that had angered the Lord and resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity in Babylon. So consequently, the pleasant land had been made desolate. And that really sums up sinful humanity, doesn't it? God gives good things. God lays down good requirements for our good and men spoil them by ignoring those good requirements. So throughout chapter seven, the emphasis was on the Lord's response to what men do and the disaster that ensues when they think they know best and when they do their own thing. And it ended with those chilling words, thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. But thankfully, the Lord's response didn't end there. In chapter eight, uh, we're going to see parts three and four of his response. Uh, in, in verse one, we see the word of the Lord of hosts came again. And we see that word in verses, uh, uh, we, see, we see that um, in verses nine to 23. Uh, throughout chapter 8 the emphasis is now on what the Lord will do. If chapter 7 was about how men caused the pleasant land 
to be made desolate, chapter 8 is about how the Lord will make the desolate land pleasant. So for now, we're just going to look at that third word from the Lord, and that's in verses 1 to 17. And in that section, uh, there are actually seven statements, each preceded by, thus says the Lord of hosts. So Gordon this morning apologised for a long introduction. Uh, I'm going to apologise for a seven-point sermon. Uh, To help you remember those seven points, they all begin with the letter P. Uh, The statements concern God's possessiveness, God's presence, God's peace, God's perspective, God's people, God's provision, and God's purpose. So there you go, seven Ps, and with those in mind, you'll get a good feel for how far we we're getting along the first statement then is about God's possessiveness and we see that there in verse 2 thus says the Lord of hosts I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath it's a statement the Lord makes about himself uh, and it's really the foundation for all that he's going on to say. He said, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. You notice, I am. This is a, a constant, fixed attribute of God. He's not saying, I've become very jealous uh, for Zion. Um, no. Uh, nor is he saying, well, you know, they can be such rascals, but I've developed a bit of a soft spot for them. No, he's saying, I am very jealous for Zion. Now, when we speak of being jealous, uh, we usually think of it as being a bad thing, don't we? But when the Lord speaks of himself as jealous, he doesn't mean that he's, he's envious, if you like. It, it refers to his deep, possessive love for his people. It, it isn't based on their goodness, because they're not good. It's not based on their worthiness because they're not worthy. It's solely on the basis of his sovereign choice and what he's decided to do for them. Back in chapter 1 of Zechariah, a long time ago, we saw, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Well, what does the Lord's being uh, jealous Uh, mean well continuing into verse 15 of of that passage we read and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease for while I was angry but a little they furthered the disaster now that could give the impression that, that jealousy is the opposite of anger or that jealousy and anger are mutually exclusive but remember that in our passage the Lord is speaking of the people of Jerusalem he said that great anger came from the Lord of hosts. So the Lord was very angry with the people of Jerusalem, and they were those for whom he was jealous. You know, the Lord can be angry with those for whom he is jealous, as well as being angry with those for whom he's not jealous. That's what we see here. Having said, I am jealous for Zion with great zeal, The Lord now says, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. You see such 
jealous love isn't unrealistic. It isn't naive. It doesn't make God blind to their sin. It's the depth of his love for them that makes him so angry. Um, you, you might see a child being a bit naughty uh, and you're annoyed. But if it's your child that's doing the same thing, then you will be angry. Not because you don't love them, but precisely because you do love them so much and you're, you're concerned for them. Well, because this jealous love isn't dependent on any good thing in his people, it doesn't grow less if we stray from him, but his anger will grow if we stray from him. See, we don't have a, a fickle God who is swayed by, by whims and fancies and, and circumstances. His love for his people is steadfast. And that's the basis for all that he's done and all that he will do. Right, second statement is about God's presence. See that in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, if you're using the NIV, you'll see that that begins by saying, I will return to Zion. But the ESV is, is quite correct in saying, I have returned to Zion. In what sense was that true? Well, his people were returning to Jerusalem. He was now speaking to them through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that the temple was being rebuilt. He just made this statement about himself and he continues then by saying that he had returned. And then he goes on to make a statement about what he will do and what will happen in the future. And you notice it's something that he's determined to do. He didn't say, if my people listen to me, I will dwell among them. Or if they mend their ways, I will dwell among them. No, he states quite simply and bluntly, he will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So you notice we've got a distinction here between the Lord returning, which he's done at this time, and the Lord's dwelling, which he is going to do at some point in the future. They're two different things. He'd returned, but he was yet to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Didn't say when, but at some point in the future, he would. He said that when that time came, and he did dwell in, the, dwell in their midst, Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So when the Lord dwells in Jerusalem, it will be called two things. Firstly, the faithful city, or the NIV, I think, is more accurate in saying the city of truth. Uh, and secondly, Jerusalem will be called the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. The point is that when the Lord dwells in Jerusalem, it will be characterized by truth and by holiness. Not because of anything that men do, but because the Lord dwells there. Now, no doubt Zechariah was thinking in terms of the Lord dwelling in their midst as soon as the rebuilding of the, the temple had been completed. But, of 
course, the reality was that the Lord never dwelt in any man-made temple. You remember Solomon's words when he dedicated the, uh, the original temple in all its glory that he had built. It's there in 1 Chronicles 6.18. And he said, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? And of course, uh, Solomon, in one way, was wonderfully wrong there. And in another way, he was absolutely right. Now, of course, when Jesus came, God did dwell uh, with man on earth. But Solomon's question had been a, a rhetorical question, and the answer was no. God will not live in the t a temple like the one I've built. How much less likely was he to dwell in this poor imitation uh, uh, of the glorious temple that Solomon had built. When the Lord said that he would dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, he was looking forward not to any physical temple, but to the spiritual Jerusalem that would truly be characterized by truth and by holiness. Third statement we're whizzing through, aren't we? Uh, this is about God's peace. Uh, see that in verses four and five. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. This is a, a description of what it will be like once the Lord has come to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. It is a, a lovely picture of, of well-established and settled contentment. The point seems to be that the truth and the holiness of the previous statement aren't just fanciful notions. These aren't theological ideas. They're not abstract ideas. They have real practical consequences and they will eventually result in the best possible quality of life. Now, in the immediate context, the, the reference to the, the elderly and, and children would have been very much in contrast to the, the, the social um, situation in Jerusalem at the time. Because Jerusalem was a huge building site. It would have been mainly populated by uh, fit and strong young men, you know, the builders of the day. You know, no place there for, for the elderly with, with their walking sticks. Not, not a fit place to bring up children. Uh, in fact, it's probably unlikely that many really elderly people and young children uh, would have been able to make the long journey back uh, from Babylon anyway. So there would have been a marked absence of the elderly passing their time of day in the streets, of children playing in the streets. And the Lord is saying that that would no longer be the case when he came to dwell among them and true uh, truth and holiness prevailed. So we have this beautiful picture of young and old uh, peacefully coexisting. And of course, it's very much in marked contrast um, to our own day as well, isn't it? Elderly people far too often are looked upon not as being a blessing, 
but it's a problem. I say that as one who's becoming older. <laughs> and too many, uh, too many, uh, yeah, they say there are too many of them. They're living too long. They impose a burden on the rest of us. And children, viewed by many as being noisy, messy, ungrateful nuisances. And of course, putting the elderly and children together is a huge recipe for disaster, isn't it? You know, you get the cantankerous old person coming face to face with the insolent young person. And it's bad news, isn't it? That, that's what life's like now in this, uh, this fallen world. But you see here the Lord speaks of the elderly sitting in the streets, even though they're filled with kids playing. You know, and they're not going to be shouting at them, watch what you do with that ball or, or whatever. No, it's a picture of, of tolerance and contentment uh, and respect that seems to be so impossible in this world that you begin to wonder whether this is an earthly scene at all. And that seems to confirm that we were right in thinking that the Lord's uh, coming will be to dwell uh, to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem is pointing forward to a future spiritual heavenly Jerusalem fourth statement this is about God's perspective see that in verse 6 thus says the Lord of hosts if it is marvellous in the sight of the remnants of this people in those days should it also be marvellous uh, in my sight declares the Lord of hosts and we're seeing here a, a contrast between the, the point of view of what's referred to as the remnant of this people and the Lord of hosts. Now, what does the remnant of this people refer to? Well, you might think it refers to those uh, who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem. However, we're told that this remnant will be in those days. Or the NIV, NIV puts it as at that time so this is once again looking forward to something in the future what time, what days but well surely it's the time that's been looked forward to so far the time of peace and contentment when the Lord is dwelling in the midst of Jerusalem and the old and young are happy together so the remnant of this people are those who will be there uh, and who will experience that for themselves in verse 7, the Lord will go on to speak of saving my people. But notice that here he's speaking of a remnant of this people. Now by this people, I think he means the physical nation of Israel. He's saying that there would be a remnant from among them who would be included in this true believing people a remnant of, of Jews would be included in what Paul describes in Ephesians 2 as one new man that, that's reconciled to God through the cross of Christ so we have every reason to believe that uh, throughout history some Jews will come to faith in Christ and, and be saved but we've no reason to think that at some time the whole Jewish nation will be saved. Those who are saved will be 
a remnant. By definition, that's not the whole, is it? You know, if you go to a, a carpet shop to buy a remnant, you buy a small piece of carpet that's been left over at the end of a roll. It's certainly not the whole or even the majority, but it is some. What did the Lord say with respect to this remnant? Well, he said, if it is marvellous in the sight of the remnants of this people in those days. A more literal translation of that is, if it's difficult in the sight of the remnants. The idea seems to be that it will be very hard for them to believe it. When it happens, uh, it will seem so incredible as to be beyond their comprehension. What will seem marvellous or, or difficult to them? Well, surely it's what the Lord has been saying in the preceding statements about the Lord dwelling in Jerusalem, and as a result, it being called the, the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. The Lord is saying that to this remnant who experience it, it will all seem too good to be true. It will seem to be marvellous. They'd have thought it impossible men can't bring about such things it's beyond their wildest dreams but in contrast to that the verse continues by saying should it also be marvellous in, in my sight declares the Lord of hosts it's another rhetorical question isn't it will the Lord find it surprising will he be amazed when it happens well of course not there's nothing surprising about it from his perspective he's planned it all He'll have brought it all about. Nothing's too hard for him. Nothing's impossible with God. He's jealous for his people. He's determined to dwell among them. And he'll do all that's needed to bring that about. Now, sometimes we, we sing that wonderful hymn, Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Well, it, it does amaze us, doesn't it? But it doesn't amaze God. It's who he is. Yeah, it's what he's like. It's what he does. He, he's simply being true to his nature and doing what he's planned to do. Fifth statement, this is about God's people. See that in verses 7 to 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. Cue for a Devon and Cornwall joke there, isn't there? <laughs> and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. What a wonderful statement that is. You know, again, the, the emphasis was entirely on looking forward to what the Lord would do. Uh, two things in particular firstly he says I will save my people and secondly I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem who are my people that the Lord says he was going to save who are the, these people these, the, the, these my people what is uh you notice that um, he says it's from the east and the west. So you know, although you might think that it's referring to uh, the returning Jews who are in captivity in Babylon, but you notice it is from the countries to the east and the west. The Jews were in captivity 
in Babylon. That was to the east, not the west. The Lord is here speaking of saving his people from throughout the whole world, throughout the whole of the earth, from east to west. Um, we've already seen that mentioned uh, in Zechariah back in chapter 2, verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. That sound familiar? That's what we've been looking at. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. He said that people from many nations will become my people. When? Well, we're told it will be in that day. What day is that? Look back at chapter 2, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. You see, it's the day when the Lord would come and live among them. What's more, this one who is the Lord will have been sent by the Lord of hosts. This is God sent by God. You see that? It's wonderful, isn't it? This is the Lord who will have been sent by the Lord of hosts. That day refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord saves his people throughout the whole earth by the coming of Christ. And he brings them to live in Jerusalem. Clearly, this is looking beyond the physical city of Jerusalem. All these people wouldn't fit, for one thing. This is looking forward to the Jerusalem that was described back in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, where the Lord said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. This is the spiritual Jerusalem in which the Lord dwells with his people. So the Lord is saying that he'll save his people and then bring them to himself. You notice the order. Our first need is to be saved. And only when we've been saved do we come into that relationship with God. Well, continuing in, in verse 8, we see uh, what that relationship is. The Lord says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Now you notice he's already referred to them as my people when he looked forward to saving them. But now he says that when he saved them and brought them to himself, they shall be my people. You see, in one sense, they were already his people. But once he saved them, they'll be his people in a much fuller sense. All, they were already his people in the sense that he'd chosen them, he'd set his jealous love upon them, and had purposed to save them. That, that's the doctrine of election. In the eternal purposes of God, they were his people already. But once he saved them, then they'll be his people. They'll live as his people. They'll experience uh, the joy of being his people. Their relationship with God will no longer simply be something that's within his purposes. It will have become a living reality. And not only would they be his people, but he continues by saying, 
and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. You know, the idea here is that it's uh, the relationship between God and his people that's characterised by faithfulness and righteousness. You know, under the old covenant, God was faithful, God was righteous, but his people were not. They were unfaithful. They broke his commands, they ignored the prophets, and generally did whatever pleased them. But in the, the days that the Lord was looking forward to, those that the Lord would save would truly be his people, and they would be made righteous. He was looking forward to the days of the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sixth statement. This is about God's provision. Um, we see it in verses 9 to 13, so it's the, 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 the longest of, of these uh, statements. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbour. But now... I will not deal with the remnants of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnants of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not but let your hands be strong. So having been looking forward uh, to God's long-term plans, he's now addressing the more immediate future. In verse 9, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built he's saying that the part that the immediate hearers had to play in his plans to save his people from all over the world was to work hard and rebuild the te rebuild the temple there had been serious problems and hardship that had been holding up the, the rebuilding of the temple as outlined in, in verse 10 there but verse 11 makes it clear that things were going to change as indicated by the but now. Now what? But now I will not deal with the remnants of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, the, the Lord has been looking forward and talking about saving my people, but here he refers to the people of Zechariah's day as of the remnant of this people. Now, as he said before, this people means natural Israel. And I think here he must be referring to the remnant of this people as being those who had returned from captivity uh, to rebuild the temple. The Lord said that he'd return to them, so how would he now deal with them? And he's going to deal with them, as he says in verse 12, for there will be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens will give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. I think this is quite literally a promise to provide them 
with the basics of life so that they could get on with building the temple without delay. That he did so is evidenced by the fact that the temple was completed uh, within the next two years. By doing that in the immediate future, they would be furthering God's long-term purpose and that would result in what we see in verse 13. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Most commentators seem uh, to take this to mean that Israel had been under a, a, a curse. Um, that's the sense the NIV gives, where it says you have been an object of cursing among the nations. But the text actually says, as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, I will save you and you shall be a blessing. And I, I take this to mean that the, the theocratic nation of Israel that had the law and the prophets was actually a curse on the other nations. You know, those who were not in Israel were strangers. They were afar off. They were without God. They were without hope. If, if, if you weren't an Israelite, you were doomed. If you weren't an Israelite, effectively you were cursed. But that was going to change because through Israel, the Lord was going to bring the Messiah and the gospel of salvation to all who come to faith in Christ. In that way, Israel would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Well, what greater blessing is there than the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it would come through Judah and Israel. In view of that, the message of the Lord to them was, fear not, but let your hands be strong. Seventh and final statement about, is about God's purpose. And we see that in verses 17, uh, 14 to 17. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did good to Jerusalem, and, no, I've missed the line, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Well, we said at the, the outset that the emphasis throughout this chapter is on the fact that God is in control. God works out his purposes. His, uh, he's sovereign and it's hammered home again for us there in verses 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Why had Jerusalem been destroyed and the people taken into captivity? Well, Historians can theorise about socio-political reasons and all the rest of it, but the real reason, as given by the Lord, was as I purposed. Likewise, uh, likewise now, 
the, the Lord was going to bless them with a period of peace and prosperity and that was again because he was determined to do so so the message is don't be afraid because the Lord is in control but the word of the Lord always balances God's sovereignty against human responsibility you know, he will never allow us to think that if God is in control it doesn't matter what we do uh, and that's the case here too because in verses 16 to 17 we read these are the things that you shall do speak the truth to one another render your gates in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things i hate declares the lord and, and the lord's saying i'm in control but these are things that you're to do he's saying leave everything else with me you can't do anything about that this is what i want you to do it's almost the same um, as, as what we saw previously in, in chapter 7 verses 9 to 10 you know when he says speak the truth to one another render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace do not devise evil in your hearts uh, and love no false oath it's almost the same as he said back in in chapter 7 that we were looking at last week wasn't it it's also what he said by the former prophets and he still says today the difference is that now Christ has come and the Holy Spirit has been given to enable us to do uh, what God requires and to enable us to not do what God hates summed up in Galatians 5 22 to 26 but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy peace patience kindness gentleness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit let us also keep in step with the Spirit Zechariah was being shown the time when the Holy Spirit would be here and in us and enabling us to live the lives that God uh, requires of us thus the desolate land is made pleasant so next week we'll carry on uh, in the rest of chapter 8 and we'll see a bit more about the land that was desolate but has now been made pleasant amen